Well, hello, friends. Uh, this is the Reverend Drew Miller at St. John's Church, and this is our fourth installment of our first Foundations of Faith course, The Story of Everything. This fourth episode uh, covers the topic of the Christ, the coming of the Messiah, the Anointed One, um, to initiate the restoration of God's creation. This recording is being made in my office because uh, somehow we failed to record it on Sunday morning. So, uh, it may be a bit faster than it would have been otherwise, um, and perhaps even less eloquent, uh, but nevertheless, um, here is our fourth session. And as we begin, um, even as I'm here in the office, let me pray for us and our study. Father, we are really grateful for your word. We're grateful for the invitation to enter into a new understanding of this story that we are already a part of. Grateful that you would not just leave us and uh, in the brokenness of this world, but that you would enter into this world yourself to restore it. Pray that you would use our time now and um, my words to reshape our hearts and our imaginations that we might participate more fully in what you are doing now. Um, and what you have done, and in what you are going to do, that we might live into the story that you have written and given us. We pray in your name. Amen. All right, so just to recap where we've been, we started our first session talking about the creation of the world, and we focused on a couple key things from Genesis 1 and 2, specifically that the world is made good, and that humanity is made for a purpose. So the world is made good. It isn't some kind of fallen, less than spiritual thing. Um, the material is not some lesser, less beautiful na- of a nature than the spiritual. The material world is made with love by God, and God delights in it. He looks back on it with joy. We see that in Genesis 1. And humanity has a role to play within that creation. Specifically, in relationship with God the Creator, humanity is tasked with the stewardship of the creation to um, tend and care for it, to guard and develop it, um, to rule over it. In a sense, the sense of being made in the image of God, it can mean a lot of things, but it seems that at least in, in part, in major part, this image of God is to act as God in the world. That is to act with loving creativity in this world. To reflect on it and enjoy it and to turn it to more fully glorify God. And uh, in more depth to benefit the, itself, the rest of creation and humanity within it. So that's our call. That's what we talked about in our first session. In our second, we talked about the fall This is the moment in which humanity's rebellion allows sin and death and brokenness to enter into the world and begin to wreak havoc. Humanity asserts its autonomy, it asserts its right, it claims anyway, uh, to determine right and wrong for itself. It acts in pride, rejecting the will of God and his wisdom and his love. And in so doing, they cut themselves off from the source of life. Um, You know, in the day that you eat of it, you shall die, God promises. And so as humanity eats of the forbidden fruit, as they take good and evil and its its determination on their own shoulders instead of trusting in God, death enters into their hearts, into the world, and all of creation is fractured. So we see in Genesis 3, 
the fracture between humans as they blame each other for what's happened. A clear fracture between humanity and God as they hide in shame and, um, and fear from the Lord. We see fracture between humanity and the earth as the earth is now cursed because of their failure to steward it, failure to have proper dominion over it. And we even see um, a fracture within the human soul, this entrance of shame, that uh, a, f- a broken self-understanding um, that enters in because humanity abandons its relationship with God, abandons God's purposes for it in creation. Um, so that's the fall. And we ended that week um, recognizing that we are both presence, victims in the suffering of the world, and also culpable agents within it, that we continue this fall now. We continue to assert ourselves over and against God, even as we receive the consequences of that assertion from others. So what's going to happen? What what can be done about this new state of affairs that we all live in, that we all recognize? Well, session three introduced this topic of covenant. Covenant. And covenant, we explained, was the way in which God orders his relationship with his people. Specifically, a covenant was a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. And that was how the theologian Robertson, O.P. Robertson, defined it. A bond in blood, sovereignly administered. And we broke that down. It's a bond, it's a relationship like a marriage or like a contract in which two parties are defining their relationship with one another. It's a bond in blood because the consequence of breaking that relationship is death, the shedding of blood. Remember Abraham as he walked, uh, as he as he prepared the sacrifice for the covenant cutting ceremony, as he split the animals that were to be walked between. Um, walk between the halves of the animals in that blood path that's created as you divide them and lay them on the ground. That sign that if I am to fail at my end of the covenant, let me be torn. Remember that from um, our covenant discussion. We talked about how uh, it's a bond in blood sovereignly administered. That is that God sets the terms. The sovereign, the king, the suzerain determines how this relationship will be. And so we looked at Genesis in chapter 12 and mostly in Genesis chapter 15 about this covenant ceremony that Abraham makes, uh, that God makes with Abraham. And Abraham expecting to have to make a covenant with God on a threat of death is terrified, petrified, unable to move, and God makes the covenant on his behalf. Says, Abraham, I will carry this through. I will complete my purposes. I will restore my creation. God makes promises in relationship with us, covenants that set a new trajectory in a broken world towards wholeness, towards a restoration of God's purposes. We talked about that that trajectory being set towards something on the horizon, like a tree, like the sailor might pick a tree on the first side of land to set their sail by, to, to shape the movement of the ship towards a goal, a tree on the horizon, and how each covenant had hints that pointed towards that tree, and the hints were rich and varied. And so we talked about how Adam and God's covenant with creation, especially as God speaks to Adam and Eve through the fall, there's this promise that an offspring of Eve will crush the head of the serpent, even as that offspring's heel is crushed in the process. So some kind of suffering that will destroy evil. Talked about God's covenant with Noah and the rainbow and God's promise that he will not destroy the world again by water 
and that promise marked by a bow, a weapon of war, pointed into the heavens as though God would receive the arrow. We talked about covenant of Abraham and the promise that God makes that in Abram's offspring, all the world will be blessed. And then we saw God walk that blood path for him saying, I will be torn in your place. We talked about God's promise to Moses in which he institutes the sacrificial system by which the sins of humanity might be borne by an innocent lamb. You know, this hint is what's to come. God's covenant with David offering another hint of the tree on the horizon as David has promised that a king of his line will be on the throne forever. These hints that the covenants set up that direct us towards God's perfect conclusion, that direct us towards the tree on the horizon. And so this morning we've come to that tree, to Jesus himself, who comes to fulfill the covenants and to restore the world to God's created purposes. Of the Father's love begotten, ere the worlds began to be, he is the Alpha and Omega, he the source, the ending he, of the things that are and have been and that future years shall see, evermore and evermore. This is he whom they in old time chanted of with one accord, whom the voices of the prophets promised in their faithful word. Now he shines the long expected, let creation praise its Lord evermore and evermore. A hymn by Prudentius, 4th, 5th century. Jesus the Christ comes, the tree on the horizon. And the first question that we want to ask when we look at this Christ is who is he? Who is he? Well, first, he's very much a man. This Christ is not a mythical creature, but a real, material, historical figure, a person, an Arabic Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago. We have this attested to by Roman and pagan sources too. This was a real man who really walked on this dirt, really lived in the presence of our history. We're told in the scriptures who his family was, when he was born, under which ruler he died. He's a historical human being. But not only is he a human being, Jesus, we are also told in Scripture, is very much God. And not simply very good, so good he's God-like, but actually God. This Jesus, John the Apostle, the Gospel writer, tells us that this Jesus was with God in the beginning, that he was God himself. Tells us that all things were made through him. Paul in Colossians repeats this claim. This Jesus is the creator God of all. All things, whether in heaven and earth, made in him. And Jesus knew it. Jesus knew that he was man and knew that he was God. He acted like it, both as man and God. He acted in miracles and in power. Something only God could have done, but also he declared forgiveness of sins. Something Israel believed only God could do. Jesus said things like, I and the Father are one. And things like, before Abraham was, I am. This is why they kill him, of course, because he claims to be God. Blasphemy of blasphemies, you know, unless it's true. And this Jesus, 
this Jesus is called the Christ. The Christ. Now, what does that mean? So, Christ Christos is the Greek translation of a Hebrew word that you might know, Messiah, Mashiach. Literally, the word Messiah means the anointed one, the one who is anointed. Now, anointing was how someone was set apart to a holy task. So, kings were anointed to lead their people in God's justice. Prophets were anointed to speak God's word. Priests were anointed to serve as mediator between God and man. So a Christ, a Messiah, was an anointed one, one anointed, one set apart to accomplish a particular divine purpose, like a priest, like a prophet, like a king. And specifically, in the time of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, was one sent, anointed, for the salvation of God's people. Now it's worth knowing Jesus was not the only person given the title Messiah. There were several others called that by that title. It's not a title that specifically sets him apart from all these other rescuers of Israel in whatever time period they came. What's different about Jesus is his claim to divinity, his claim to be God, and his anointed mission. His anointed mission to save creation as a whole, to restore all things in heaven and on earth. That's what makes this Christ the Christ, the Christ par excellence, the the ultimate Christ, the Messiah beyond compare to all others. This is who Jesus is, historical figure, historical human being, as well as God, the Christ, who's anointed for the task of of what God has for him in the world, the mission of God in the world. So that's our second question. If that's who Jesus is, the second question we have to ask is, what is the mission that God has anointed the Christ for, that Jesus Christ comes to do? And it is nothing less than the restoration of the cosmos, the restoration of all of creation. In his life, his death and resurrection, Jesus comes to turn a sinful, broken, cursed world into the world of blessing again. As the favorite carol sings, No more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. This is what he's come to do, to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found to restore all of creation, everywhere that sin has touched, to make it new. So how will he do it? How will the Messiah do this work of restoration, of healing, of salvation? Well, for starters, we need to recognize that question, how, is a very Western question. When we in the West come to something we don't understand and we want to know how it works, we want to know how it works, first of all. That's, that's our opening foray, the first thing we think to ask. How? Like a machine, we want to know how the parts fit together. What they do, what each piece accomplishes towards its purposes. But we could also ask, in the same breath, why? Not just how, but why something is here. Why it is the way that it is. We might even ask what it means. But we Westerners tend to ask how. How it works kind of mechanistically frames. So when we hear that Jesus comes to restore the world, we want to know the mechanics of it. We want 
a spiritual accounting, as it were. How exactly does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus change our position in the world? But this is not the first question that ancient Israel asked of the world or of the Christ. They understood the how to be of far less importance than the what and the what for. And so in the scriptures, instead of giving us a diagram or an equation as to how the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus bring about the restoration of the world, instead of a diagram, we get metaphors, illustrations, images. And these illustrations primarily tell us what has happened and what it means, rather than how the spiritual mechanics of it all played out. So let's look now at the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, and we'll ask, as we do, how the scriptures, in metaphor and illustration, open to us what has happened and what it means for us. What has happened and what it means. And we're not going to cover it all, as Athanasius, 4th century bishop and theologian, put it, Christ's achievements were so numerous that to count them would be like gazing at the open sea, trying to count the waves. Isn't that a lovely image? Trying to count the waves. So we can't cover it all. But we're going to cover what we can. Um, we're going to break our discussion the rest of this time into three categories. His life, death, and resurrection. And for each one, we're going to ask what happened. And second, what it means for us. And just as we look at those three categories, it's worth noting that the death of Christ, his death on the cross, is the great focus of the Western church, Catholic and Protestant alike. We often forget that Christ's work and his restoration of all things is much more than just what happens on the cross. Salvation is wrought by every piece of his life, death, and resurrection. The good news isn't just that Jesus died, but that Jesus was and is and is to come, that he is the Lord. The good news is much broader than we often think. So we'll cover all of it, life, death, and resurrection in kind of a a quick jaunt, Uh, together this morning. So let's look briefly at these three things, life, death, and resurrection, what they mean for us. So the life of Jesus. What happens? We're going to find kind of two categories that might help us explore the life of Jesus. First, incarnation and second, holiness. So what happens in the life of Jesus? Incarnation um, means it's the theological term that we use to describe God taking on flesh, God taking humanity into himself, God becoming human for us. So in Jesus, we have the God-man, both God and man, fully God and fully man present. That's what happens. And as he lives, we see the character of this God-man, and that's the word term we would use to describe it, would be holiness. Might also use righteousness. This is how he lives. He lives in line with the truth of God, in line with love And with mercy and justice, he lives in line with the universe and the way that God created a perfect life. What happens in the life of Jesus? God is incarnate. God is present to us and he lives in a way that is holy and righteous. So what does that mean? What happens now? What it means? What does it mean that God is incarnate, that God in Christ lives a holy life? The theological term for what it means for us is recapitulation. Recapitulation. This retelling, the repeating of the story, the starting over, the beginning again. And the metaphor that we get for this in Scripture 
is this, the, the metaphor is a second Adam, a new Adam, a new perfect son of God, obeying where the first Adam failed. Recapitulation. There's a beginning again, a starting over, a retelling of the tale in Christ. So what does that mean? That means that God's purposes in creation are being fulfilled in Jesus. The longing of God from the beginning to be restored to humanity in love and in joy, a humanity that has rejected him, well, in Jesus, that humanity is joined to him again. We don't have to wait for the cross for a new humanity to be restored to God because in Jesus, it is already present. In Jesus, humanity is restored to God. That relationship is made anew. It started over, which means that there's a new kind of way to be human for us. There's a new family of God set apart that we can now become a part of by baptism, by joining in the kingdom of God. We can be part of this new humanity under the new Adam, the second Adam, the recapitulation of humanity, the re-beginning of God's story with humans. That's what it means that Jesus is incarnate, that God has taken on flesh. This is what it means that Jesus is holy. It means there's a new humanity that we can participate in. And second, it also means that God's covenants are fulfilled. Remember, we talk about um, how God's covenants all point towards this moment on the horizon, the tree that's set set ahead for us to sail towards, that all creation is bent towards, that God is moving all things towards. But we didn't spend as much time talking about how in each covenant there was a call for humanity to live in light of that new trajectory, to live in light of God's purposes. Each time God makes a covenant, he invites his people and commands them to live in light of his promises, to live in light of his holiness. This is what the human side of these relationships that God creates in the covenants is intended to look like. Holiness, righteousness. In Jesus now, there is someone who is able to fulfill the covenants as God set them out. Someone who's able to live as God has always called humanity to live in holiness and righteousness. He's able to fulfill the covenant of Israel from both sides, as it were, to walk the path for us. That's the life of Jesus. Secondly, let's look at his death. What happens? In Christ, we get the death of an innocent man. That's what happens. And nothing can be more common in the history of humanity than that, the death of an innocent man. That alone would be no shocking fact. What is shocking, what is tremendous about this death is that this man was perfectly innocent in every way. This was not someone who had guilt in other places hidden, uh, you know, in his heart in this or that, for this or that thing, um, and happened to be innocent of this one for which he was killed. This is a man who brings no guilt at all into the, into the equation, into the courtroom. That's different. It's a different kind of death, a different kind of injustice. And second, this man also happens to be God. So what happens? A perfectly innocent man, God walking in the flesh, is killed. Peter, Jesus' closest apostle, proclaims that we killed the author of life. 
It's from Acts chapter 3. Dorothy Sayers, the novelist from the uh, 1900s, she put it like this. She said that when God was the underdog and got beaten, when he submitted to the conditions that he laid down and became a man like the men he had made, and the men he made broke him and killed him. This is a terrifying drama of which God is the victim and hero. See, this is the great mystery, and it's one that we are not worthy of, but the God of life who does not change, somehow that God takes into his very being our death and calls it his own. He looks at death, he takes it on his shoulders and says, this now belongs to me as much as it does to you. And all the while, this God declares forgiveness to those who kill him. That's what happens. That is what happens in the death of Jesus. So now what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? Well, the theological term often used for this, the theological importance of the death of Christ, is the term substitution. This is particularly uh, important, emphasized in the Western church, Protestant, Catholic alike. Substitution. That is, that Christ bears our punishment. He takes our place. Remember the wages of sin, the cost of sin is death. When you eat of that fruit, on that day you will die, says the Lord. Death is the consequence of sin. And yet, here in some great mystery, God takes that death himself for us. A metaphor that we get in the scriptures is that of sacrifice, just like sacrifice in the ancient Israel. He, like an innocent lamb, takes our guilt and our shame on his shoulders and carries it away. It is buried with him in death. And so St. Anselm, medieval theologian, says that his death outweighs the number and magnitude of all our sins. Athanasius, that bishop from the 4th century, says that beyond all this, all his teaching and recreating that Jesus does, is a debt owing which must needs be paid. All men were due to die, but Jesus dies in place of all, to settle man's account with death and to free him from the most primal transgressions. Substitution. Somehow, in a great mystery, what happens on the cross is that God takes our place. He takes our death himself and calls it his own. C.S. Lewis talks about this in a way that I find most compelling. He talks about how forgiveness always means absorbing the debt. So if I owe you $10,000 and you forgive me that debt, the gap of $10,000, the hole in the bank account is still there. You still bear that. It's not that the hole disappears, it's that you now are less $10,000. You bear it. To forgive is to bear the debt oneself to let the debtor go free. And so when death is incurred by humanity's rebellion, for God to forgive it is to bear it. I've always found that compelling. It's a great image of what's happening there. Lewis goes on to say that forgiveness is uh, always something like death, isn't it? Anytime that you forgive someone of their sins, of their sins against you. You know, forgiveness is freeing for the one who forgives, it's true, but to, but even still, part of you feels like it dies. 
when you let someone off the hook for something they've done to you. You want to demand justice, and yet to let it go, there's a little death that happens. And so C.S. Lewis says, this little death compounded a million times over in every human heart for Christ to forgive it all. It is not surprising that such forgiveness would require true death, physical death. Lewis is always, always helpful, I think. So Jesus' life fulfills the covenants of God, fulfills the purposes of God in creation, restoring humanity to God, beginning to restore the right ordering of the creation under the dominion of God's image on earth. That's what Jesus' life is and does. In his death, his substitution, his taking our place, God in Jesus takes on himself the debt that sin incurs and extends forgiveness to us. It makes it possible for us to step into this new humanity and to be a part of his restored order. In part three, resurrection. So what happens and what does this mean? In the resurrection of Jesus, what happens Quite bluntly, a heart that had ceased to beat days before began to beat again. A heart that had ceased to beat began to beat again. This is not resuscitation. This isn't Jesus coming out of a coma. This is a dead man, dead and buried, suddenly alive again. Remember, not just a man, but the man who claimed to be God and was killed for it. The man who declared the forgiveness of God. And is killed for it. That's what happens. The God-man who has died and was buried is raised. That's what happens in the resurrection. So what does that mean for us? Well, before we get to what new it means, what else it means, it, it means a vindication of his life and of his death. First, most obviously, uh, his resurrection vindicates his words and his deeds. It, it proves that Jesus was not lying, nor was he insane. His claims to be God were validated by his resurrection. He really was what he says he was. And that means not only was his divinity, his nature, his his godness true, but his forgiveness was also true. The friend of sinners was not just some kind of a kind-hearted idealist. He truly was God, which means that God truly is the friend of sinners. Jesus' resurrection means that the promise of forgiveness is real, and it's really offered. So, uh, before anything else, what the resurrection means, it means that. It means his life and his death are vindicated. Um, but further, his resurrection um, produces a, a theological term um, that began in the early church. It's Latin, Christus Victor, um, the triumphant king, Christ the victorious, the king, um, the the winner. And so that, that would be what his resurrection means. Um, his resurrection is the defeat of death and all the powers of evil. It is the declaration that death has been absorbed by life and that life has won. The early church fathers um, sometimes used the illustration of a fish hook as though Jesus was swallowed by death and evil, death and evil thinking that they were uh, conquering all goodness in the process, but instead death was hooked, death was brought out of the water, death was caught um, as it were. Um, in the power of Christ and his resurrection. In the words of John Donne, um, one of his holy sonnets, the resurrection of Jesus declares that death shall die, that death itself shall die. Christus Victor, Christ 
victorious, the triumphant Messiah. That's what his resurrection means. And that means further that his conquering of death and evil will be shared with us too. Jesus is not the the first and last to be raised from the dead. He's what they what Paul in Colossians calls the firstborn from the dead. He is the beginning of the resurrection. His conquering of death means that death is conquered by all who follow him. And so we have uh, in the great hymn, All Creatures of Our God and King, one of the last stanzas, And thou, most kind and gentle death, waiting to hush our final breath, thou leadest home the child of God, as Christ before that way hath trod. O sing ye, alleluia. Christ going before has trod the path of death, and in doing so has opened a way through death into life, has conquered death and evil for us. That's what his resurrection means. So God himself has come to us. He has taken on our flesh. By his life, he fulfilled the covenants of God. He began a new humanity in perfect peace with God. By his death, he paid the penalty of sin, offered to us a rebellious humanity, offered to us forgiveness. By his resurrection, he broke the bonds of death, trampling hell and Satan under his feet, which is something we say every week as we come to the communion table. And in our flesh, in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has won for us and enacted the restoration of the world. This is the great climax of the story of God, the great turning point. And truly, it could not get more astonishing than this, the God who would come and die, and yet in dying conquer. And so begins the resolution, the denouement, the perfect restoration of God's story and of all his creation. Now, of course, the story is not over. Evil's back has been broken, but it continues to writhe. Death and suffering are stragglers in a defeated and retreating army, but they continue to produce immense pain. And the majority of the world still lives in ignorance of this salvation wrought so long ago. So we'll talk more about our role as a church, empowered by the Spirit, next week. Um, But uh, I'll leave you with this. This is just a quote from Karl Barth's Dogmatics and Outline. Summing up what we've learned today. To pronounce the name of Jesus Christ means to acknowledge that we are cared for, that we are not lost. We do not exist in any kind of gloomy uncertainty. We exist through the God who was gracious to us before we existed at all. It may be true that we exist in contradiction to this God, that we live in remoteness from Him, indeed in hostility to Him, but it is still truer that God has prepared reconciliation for us in Jesus before we entered the struggle against Him at all. That's good news.